our lead pastor is still on sabbatical, so I, Liam, one of the pastors, are going to uh, lead us in uh, study of Matthew chapter 23 this morning. So if you have that handy, uh, please open to it. You'll be helped to follow along as we go. So the press conference of Matthew 22 is over. The media scrum is quiet. The religious leaders who had bombarded Jesus with their questions on this the, the three days prior to his death they were trying to trap him with their words, with his words, of course. But with a question about the identity of the Messiah, he has trapped them. And he's identified himself then as Messiah and Lord. And that's why in chapter 23, we find Jesus doing a couple of things. Firstly, in verses 1 to 12, speaking to the crowds and to his disciples with strong warnings against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Before, secondly, which we'll get to next week, speaking to these religious leaders with judgment. And before we look at the first section in verses 1 to 12 together, let's pray. Father, your word tells us in Isaiah that you say, these are the ones that I will esteem, those who are humble and contrite and tremble at my words. Lord, give us that very attitude just now. We pray so that we might grow in faith today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So Matthew 23, reading from verse 1, this is what God's word says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. This is God's word. Well, if I were to ask you the question, what is a hypocrite, what would you say? Or who would you point to? Uh, those who've been irritated or upset by someone's insincerity might say him or her. Uh, those who have, or who are, if you like, regretfully aware of their own duplicitousness might say, well, me. But I wonder how many of you would point to someone like Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks or Jennifer Lawrence, or Judy Dench, the epitome of female actress. But people living in Jesus' day would have pointed to someone like that back then because the word hypocrite in Greek terms was someone who was an actor, a person who pretends to be someone else. The word hypocrite is uh, two words put together, uh, hypo meaning under, krites meaning judge or interpreter, 
So someone who, if you like, interprets uh, behind a mask. Now that's the thing, Unless, unlike the movies we see today, actors would often play more than one part in a production, and to prevent the audience from getting confused as to which particular character they're playing at any given point, they would wear masks, particular to each character. And it's quite obvious when you think about it, but the mask and the pretense of the performance hid the real person underneath. It was, if you like, professional pretension. Now, in acting, that's just fine. But in real life, and in the Christian life, and in Christian leadership, it's really not. It's sinister, it's wrong, and it's dangerous, and we're guilty of it. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day that have been bombarding him with questions are certainly guilty of it. So Jesus' primary indictment of them in this chapter is that they're guilty of, if you like, this professional pretension as religious leaders. They were hypocrites. And so in verse 1, Jesus turns from addressing the religious leaders to addressing the people, the crowds there, and his own disciples, his own followers, to encourage them in two particular ways. One, to warn them against hypocrisy, and two, to call them to humility, and that will be our outline this morning. First of all, Jesus warns against hypocrisy. This is in verses 1 to 7. In verses 1 to 7, Jesus says, effectively, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Okay? Do what they say. Verse 2, the teachers of the law sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Now, that's kind of surprising in a way. And maybe a little bit difficult to understand. How can Jesus say, do everything they tell you to do, when, as we've seen earlier in our studies in Matthew, they've said, he said of them in chapter 15, their teachers are rules taught by men. Or chapter 16, be on your guard against the teachings of the Pharisees. So what does Jesus want us to do? What is he saying? Well, the reference to Moses' seat is what helps us. Moses' name was synonymous with the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. They often called it the law of Moses. It's a misnomer in a sense. It really is the law of God. He's the one who delivered it. But um, this reference to Moses really helps us. What Jesus is saying here is insofar as their teaching, the teaching that comes from their mouths, is coming from God's word and faithful to it, then obey it. Do what they say. That's what we're called to do. Whenever God's word is taught, it is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. And on the one hand, you can say that that's to be irrespective of the character and the life of the person preaching it. Hypocrisy of church leaders is never actually an excuse for disobeying God's word. That wouldn't stand up in the judgment at the end. So please, as much as pastors and preachers are called to set an example, as Paul says to Timothy in speech, life, love, faith, and purity, never let the level of respect for your pastor impede your obedience to the word that's preached. That's folly. God's word is certainly infallible, but it has to come through fallible people. God's word is, if you like, pure water, but it flows through preachers who are, if you like, leaden pipes. Some of their impurities find their way in. And at the same time, then, that requires congregations to listen with real discernment, to listen with great care. 
And Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, take care how you listen. There's, there's activity involved in doing exactly what you're doing just now, or what I hope you're doing just now. So what we do our best then to maintain a healthy exposition of the text in our sermons. This is the part that those who preach in Charlotte Chapel and teach in Charlotte Chapel are endeavoring to do. We endeavor at every turn and every Sunday service, morning and evening, to be Bible-based and Christ-focused. In fact, we teach all of our ministry trainees to be doing this as well, to be, if you like, duty-bound to the text. Say what the text says. Don't say anything more. Don't say anything less. We tell them to stay on the line, if you like, of true biblical interpretation. Just say what the, stay on the line, we say. Don't go below the line. That's to say less than what the passage says. That's to, that, that is liberalism, essentially. And don't go above the line. That's to say more than what the passage says. That's legalism. And that, if you like, is the problem with the Pharisees. They're adding. They're elevating to the level of Scripture their very own traditions. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus is saying, be very, very careful to do what they teach if they keep themselves on the line. Every other passage that we see in Matthew's Gospel, for example, or the other three Gospel writers, he's criticizing them and condemning them for their traditions, for the extra teaching that they add. So Jesus says, uh, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Verse 3, 4, they don't practice what they preach. And verse 5 is helpful too. Everything they do is done for people to see. What do we see here? They, they burden people with guilt instead of preaching God's grace. I mentioned their traditions a second ago. The religious leaders of the day tried to build, if you like, a fence around the law of Moses to protect it by adding further instruction to it so that people might not inadvertently break it. But in the end, the rule book became a yoke, uh, not an egg, but a brace for a farm animal, a heavy burden that no one could carry. And people just felt utterly crushed by all these commands and the demands that were placed on them. And then that's what the leaders were doing. And if that wasn't bad enough, these religious leaders clearly didn't care about the fact that their people were struggling with guilt and with shame. They wouldn't, they indicated their selfishness, that they loved not them, but themselves, by the fact that they didn't even care. Evidenced by the fact that they didn't even lift a finger. I mean, they wouldn't do even the smallest thing to help lift someone else's burden. Lifting a finger doesn't take much effort, does it? Try it. Go. See? It was easy. Some of you didn't even bother. Well, it doesn't take much effort. But these teachers of the law just would not even do the tiniest little bit, even at the smallest inconvenience to themselves, to try and just lighten the load just a little bit for the people they were meant to be caring for. What an indictment. What a lack of love. They didn't love other people, of course. Although they claimed to love God, they really just loved themselves. They love not only themselves, they love to be noticed. That's why they wore what they wore. They are the power dressers of the day. Everybody wears what they wear for some kind of statement, in a sense, don't they? I mean, for example, you wear active wear because you want to be seen to be fit. 
Well, these guys have got Bible wear. Bible wear. That's what these phylacteries are. They're little boxes that they wore tied around their heads and tied around their wrist. And they were trying to take Deuteronomy 6 really literally when it says, you know, bind these words on your forehead and around your wrist and so on. So that, and, and they wrote these words like Deuteronomy 6 and others into their, these little boxes. They put little pieces of paper with scripture in it into these boxes and tied them around. So I don't know, every time they ran for a bus, proverbially speaking, the little box bounced on their head and the memory verse just popped into their head. Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind strength. Or someone asked them the direction to the post office. They would point and it'd be there. Oh, there's a reminder for you. Okay. Now, it's not bad to have reminders. There's nothing wrong with that at all if you wear them to draw attention to God's word. But if you wear things like that to draw attention to yourself, then that's problematic. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. They wore them not because they loved God and wanted to obey him and remember his word. They wore them because they loved themselves and wanted to be seen to be obeying him. And that's at the very root of their hypocrisy. But Jesus continues in verses 6 and 7, look with me, that they loved this VIP treatment. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Verse 7, they loved to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. All of this, all of this to, to inflate their own self-importance. They were, in today's terms, big-headed, proud people. So what do they do in summary? They burden people with guilt instead of preaching God's grace. They show people their sin without showing them a savior. They're not willing to lift the burden by pointing to God's salvation. And all because they love not God, not others, just themselves. That's what we see in verses 1 to 7. And as we look over that, the application question is really quite clear for us. The question is, are we hypocrites? Do we see some of the same traits and characteristics and activities in our own lives like the ones that we see here? Let's understand some of the specifics of this because hypocrisy can be quite confusing. I mean, if you're simply trying to live a holy life and find yourself doing the things that the Bible says you shouldn't do, or maybe doing the very thing you said was a sin in Bible study last week, I, you know, and you practice it, you're not necessarily a hypocrite. What you're doing is still sin, but it might not be hypocrisy. You see, the hypocrite is not someone who struggles in the fight against sin, hating what they end up doing because they know it grieves God and they know it's wrong. The hypocrite is the person who uses a veneer, if you like, of public virtue to cover over the rot of private sin. And with hypocrisy, there's a real deliberacy in it. It's when you're trying hard to appeal outward, appear outwardly religious while beneath the mask, you're just full of self-indulgence. You actually don't really care about God getting glory. All that you care is that people think well of you. I suppose one of the key indicators of this is how you respond when people criticize you. When people pick up on something that you've done, how do you respond? If there's a serious defensiveness there, then it could be the case that your heart is showing you that you're a hypocrite. 
And it's worthwhile exploring that, and if true, confessing that. Look, in every manner, Jesus tells us in the Gospels not to be like the hypocrites. He even says at one point when he's talking about prayer and the way that they pray on the street corners, the VIPs, they love to be seen. Jesus says, don't be like those hypocrites. They have received their reward in full. In other words, all the human praise and adulation that they have received on this earth, that's all they're going to get. They're not going to get the glory that comes from the Father when they meet him in judgment. And the rest of this chapter, as we'll see next week, will just sound a lot more like a rap sheet. Jesus, the judge, will read out the charges against these religious leaders because God hates his hypocrisy. But Jesus loves, this is what we need to remember about the gospel, Jesus loves hypocrites like us. Jesus died for hypocrites like us. Therefore, we should come to him in repentance and find the grace that he offers to us, even those who try to rob God of his glory and take it for themselves. He is so, so gracious to us. And of course, the very straightforward application from this passage is don't do what they do. Don't big yourself up in that way. Don't, don't preach obedience to God's law and leave out the bit about God's grace. That is not the gospel. The law shows us our sin and our savior shows us forgiveness for that. So we should turn to him and do not do, do not love what they love. We're not to love ourselves. We're not to go about just seeking our own good and our own glory. There's a good way of doing that. We thought about that a couple of weeks ago, how we are to love your neighbor as yourself. I hope no one went away thinking, right, I need to really think about how I start loving myself really well before I start loving other people better. No, we do that already. We love ourselves well. The whole point is that we are to start loving God best by loving others more. Or maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian, you haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're still weighing up whether or not you're a sinner or weighing up the identity of Jesus, who he is. We're glad you're here. And I wonder if you've thought about the Christian life in this particular way. I find that some people I talk to, when they are thinking about Christianity, engaging with it meaningfully, they might say, oh, I'm not sure I can even get started on this thing called Christianity. I don't know if I'm good enough to be a Christian. I don't know if I ever will be. Listen, even though you read, in many occasions in God's word, these commandments to be obeyed, we need to understand that it is not by obeying these commandments that a person is made right with God. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation is a gift from him, a free gift. And any obedience to God's commands have to be done in the right order. It's not obey, and I obey, therefore God accepts me. It's I'm accepted through Christ, and therefore, knowing that, knowing that he loves me, I'm going to obey. I'm going to live in a way that pleases him. That's the order. If you get that the wrong way around, you've completely misunderstood everything that we're saying here. Please get the order right. Ask someone to explain it to you. Ask me afterwards. I'll be at the door uh, afterwards. I'd love to chat to you about this. 
go along to one of the Christianity Explored courses. There's one running right now. They would love to have you on that to help explain these things. In a couple of weeks' time, two or three weeks' time, they'll be looking at grace. It's a brilliant section in the Christianity Explored course. And what we can know is that because Jesus himself has died for us and paid the price for our sin, we can come to him for all that grace and forgiveness. And he's not like the Pharisees. He, he is the one who has done way more than just lift a little finger to help us. He's given his entire self, his entire being, his entire body for us. So that when he died on the cross, he paid the price for our sin, that all who believe in him might have eternal life, might have the burden lifted. And that's why he says with compassion to people struggling under the weight of sin and shame and guilt and legalism earlier on in Matthew's gospel, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's another reason why you should put your faith and trust in him. So Jesus, first of all, warns against hypocrisy in verses 1 to 7. And then he goes on in verses 8 to 12, turning really to his disciples in particular. These men who will be in Christian leadership in the days coming, beyond his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, they'll be the ones who'll be in Christian leadership. And he calls for them to do two things. He says, don't big yourself up and instead give yourself away. Look with me, verses 8 to 10. He explains to them here, you don't need any particular title. Okay, the Pharisees quite enjoy being announced as, greeted as, hello, Rabbi, in the streets and in the marketplace and so on. They, they, love, they love the accolades. They like to hear it. It makes them feel just that little bit taller. It makes them puff out the chest just that little bit more. They love it. And Jesus warns them in this first instance, don't bother about these fancy titles. It doesn't matter a jot. And I think this is why, this is when he's addressing the disciples, he says, when you're talking about these positions, you're not to be called rabbi, you're not to be called teacher, you're not to be called father. And Jesus goes on to say, Why? And effectively what he communicates is that these are all things that will try to, they will put you in the way of a person's sight to the Lord. So you have only one teacher, one rabbi, one instructor, that's Jesus, the Messiah. He's just identified himself as such immediately before this, at the end of Matthew 22 as we see it. He's the son of God and the son of David. And he said, you've got one teacher, and it's me. He says, plus you won't want to draw attention away from the one to whom all attention should be given. You have only one father, and he is in heaven. My kids have got this book called Full Moon Rising. It's a fantastic little book. I wish I'd brought it with me today. Um, it's a book about the moon, and the moon is just pompous. You know, the moon in this book sings his own songs. He's all about himself. He's like, hey, everybody, look at me. Look at me. I mean, I'm wonderful. You know, I come out. If I, you know, if, I, if I pull myself away, you know, the tides fall, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Talks about his own self-importance. Until one day he catches sight of where his light actually comes from. 
the sun. Of course, the moon is only glorious as an object because it reflects a greater light, the sun. And I, I should have brought this book and read it to you. It would have been like story time in Charlotte Chapel. It's brilliant. And I think we do the same thing. The moon is robbing the sun of its glory. The glory for the light that emits it's not due to the moon, it's due to the sun. And in the same way, the glory of us as Christians, and of Christian leaders in particular, it's not, it's not none of this vain glory of saying, aren't I wonderful, and so on. We rob God of his glory if we do that. No, we are truly to be reflections of the greater glory of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and point all praise and glory and gratitude to him. There is nothing that we do as Christians. There is not one thing, one gift that we've got, whether we're serving in Sunday school or preaching from a pulpit or on a welcoming team or whatever. No one has any gift or ability that wasn't given them by God. No one can claim to have excelled in one particular area because of their primarily and only because of their expertise and their study in that area. That's pride. So don't put preachers or leaders on pedestals. Um, the Bible does call for a sufficient level of respect so that you actually listen <laughs> in some respects, but it's, it's always the case that glory goes to God. And that's what Jesus calls his disciples to understand as they come forward for ministry and ministry leadership. We ought to look to the one who is the Messiah, the Son of God. We ought to look to the one who is our Father in heaven and gain for ourselves the right kind of perspective. We look in ourselves and look in God with the right kind of ratio of understanding. And even though we think we're awesome, we compared to God, we're nothing. It's John Calvin in his institute says that man is never sufficiently touched by an awareness of his own lowly state until he has first compared himself with God's majesty. How true that is. You know, if we think we're awesome, just, just read the end of Job, where God questions Job by asking question after question after question of Answers that, uh, with questions where the answer is always, yeah, no one has done what you have done. You alone are God. You know, read through the Bible and understand who Jesus is. Look to the cross. Nothing humbles us to the dust better than looking to Christ on the cross, the Son of God, who laid aside the majesty of heaven and condescended to this earth, taking on flesh, becoming a servant, becoming obedient to man, becoming obedient to death on a cross. And all for our sake. What a picture of self-giving love. No, we are to think of ourselves with the right kind of perspective and have the right sense of all of our great God so that we can think of ourselves as nothing but grateful recipients of anything that God has given us. I mean, who are you? Who am I? I'm nobody. Christ is all. 
You know, if, if he's doing anything through me, anything through each of you, praise God, right? Praise him. Don't big yourself up. Secondly, another thing, the key thing that helps us to get everything in the right perspective and act in the right way is to give yourself away. That's what verses 11 and 12 shows, where Jesus talks about us being the greatest among you will be your servant. Service is the key to true greatness and self-forgetfulness in preference for service. That's what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, that's the very model that Jesus laid down for us, where he calls us, says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, humbled himself, even to death on a cross. So genuine Christian leaders understand ministry in this way. Self-emptying is the order of the day, not self-exaltation. Now you have to watch carefully of this because verse five can be said of people like me. where everything they do is done for people to see. It's a temptation for those in leadership. I want you to understand this. We want to be seen to be recognized. There's an unhelpful desire in my heart at times and other hearts, I'm sure, to be praised and to be liked. But elders and the leaders in this church, we must fight this kind of thing and act in a way. I mean, if we act in a way to please you and exalt ourselves, we will be the worst leaders ever. We'll never rebuke you when you need rebukes. We'll never instruct you in the passages of Scripture that are demanding in this day and age. We'll soft pedal the gospel, and you could well pay for it in eternity. But if we serve you wholeheartedly in love for God, out of loving concern for your ultimate good before Him, desiring only praise for Him and not for ourselves, if we'll love you enough to instruct you well, comfort you in your hardship, and endure with you through years of pain, and rebuke you and even discipline you in error, then we'll have done our duty. And God will have been very gracious to us and to you. The call in this passage is a choice. At the end, really, choose. Where it said, Jesus says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Self-exaltation does not go unnoticed, does not go unpunished. We see this in the book of Daniel, don't we? It's, in the book of Daniel, you've got this king called Nebuchadnezzar and he has an almighty empire. And he's on the roof of his palace one day and he's looking around and he's just like, Whoa, I'm awesome. All this is by me and for me. And God says, hang on a minute. No, no, no. All this is by me and for me. You're getting this wrong. So he humbled him. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He made him live as an animal for seven years and then restored him. And Nebuchadnezzar, when he's brought back to his senses, says in an open letter to all who will read it, all who walk in pride, he humbles. Trust me. I know this. You know it, right, don't you? How many times have you been deluded with your own self-grandeur and you've been, you know, even in the little things where you think, man, I'm quite important today, and then all of a sudden something happens and you're just humbled to the dust 
I remember being asked to preach at the St. Leonard's Lever service in St. Andrews when I was a pastor there. And it was, it's, it was held in this church in the center called Holy Trinity. And if, you know, in terms of what a church looks like, you know, hundreds of years ago in grandeur, it's like, this is, this is pompous. This is, this is pretty incredible surroundings, right? Now, before the service, very traditional in a sense, you know, they said, Liam, we brought you a gown. And I was like, a dressing gown? And they said, no, we've got a preaching gown for you. I was like, I've only ever heard of those. And so there was something in me that put it on and thought, hey, you're going to wear that quite well, Garvey. Yeah, that's all right, you know? And, and there I was, being really, really proud. And then I was thinking, do you know what? I wonder if a few hundred years ago, Knox would have preached in this pulpit. And I was thinking, well, that's, that's very cool, very cool. And then I was in this preaching gown. You had to ascend this little spiral staircase. And, you know, first time in a preaching gown, walking up, Bang, hit the floor. I stood on the gown and tripped myself up. What an absolute prune. Elevating myself to some kind of level of self-importance just because I put on a fancy gown and preaching at a fancy service in a fancy church building. What a joke. I thanked God for the lesson in humility that day and felt sad because I realized that that was only a portion of the real pride that's going on in the very root of my heart because that, that experience, that whole thing was just the outworking of what's deep in here and that's sad. When I think of my savior and what he's done to make it possible for me to come before him, it's just really sad. Robbing him of his glory, it's awful. What does Jesus do with all his power and pomp? He had no pomp. He certainly had power. I'll close with this. In John chapter 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. And the way that John lays up the passage for us is incredible. He tells us of all the things that Jesus knew. Jesus knew this, Jesus knew that, Jesus knew this. He says, Jesus knew that he was about to die, okay? The cross is imminent. It says, Jesus knew that he was about to be betrayed. His betrayer would soon leave and go. And Jesus knew that the Father had entrusted all power to the Son. So Jesus knew that every atom in the universe was almost poised ready to obey the son's command. All power, all authority was given to him. What did he do with that power? He took off his outer garment. And he wrapped a towel around himself like a common servant. In a way that even his disciples who were not deity refused to do. And he bent down and he washed his disciples' feet in love, made himself low. In love, served others. He, as John said, showed them the full extent of his love. And he loves us like that. And he demonstrates it by dying on a cross. 
one author says, if humility is the first and all including grace of the life of Jesus, if humility especially is the secret of his atonement, then let the health and strength of our own spiritual life depend entirely on us putting this grace first too and making humility the primary thing we admire in him, the primary thing that we ask of him, and the primary thing for which we sacrifice all else. So, brothers and sisters, take off the mask. Let's repent of our spiritual pretension. Let's love the gospel. Let's not rob God of his glory. Let's not big ourselves up but lay our lives down for others. And who knows what God will do through loving, self-forgetful people like us in a day and age and in a city that really needs the gospel. Let's bow our heads and pray. In fact, just take a few seconds in the quietness to offer prayers of repentance. Ask God for help in these things. He's gracious, he loves to help us. Ask him for help to do these things. And in a few seconds, the band will lead us. And when they start to play, let's stand and sing.